Welcome to Downtown the Podcast, episode number 67. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, I'm Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Our daily show, Downtown, originates from here every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations and online streaming audio on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. Two terrific conversations with very talented people this week on the program. In the second half, a country music legend talks about her work on the new Ken Burns documentary series, Country Music, and her most recent album, Pretty Bird, Kathy Matea, coming up in the second half of the program. But we get things underway by, well, talk about your talented guys, actor, musician, songwriter, who has been making people laugh and then maybe even cry for more than four decades now, going back to his first appearance nationally as Lenny in Laverne and Shirley, all the way up to his Emmy-nominated work in Better Call Saul and his wonderful turn as Sergeant Shadwell on Good Omens. We had such a wonderful time talking with the terrifically talented Michael McKeon. Michael, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Rich, and happy, happy anniversary. What What's the appropriate gift? For 2,000 shows? I, I believe it's wood, but I'm not sure. No, I don't know. Okay. Well, then I got wood for you. Go on. <laughs> I, I'm not sure how to take that. By the way, I'm very jealous of you because I saw the other night you got to see Elvis Costello and Debbie Harry yeah. in concert. That looked amazing. Yep. Well, it was the second time I'd seen uh, Blondie. The first time was exactly 40 years ago uh, at the same venue at the Greek. Wow. Uh, Elvis, I've seen... Um, thousand times and he's just i think you know just such a major artist and uh such a major dude it's uh he's just greater and greater all the time well very happy you have done so many things that that we're just huge fans of through the years we can't cover them all but I, i want to go back to the very beginning and see if i have this right is it true that you saw with your dad the british actor Stanley Holloway on stage, and that's what inspired you to go into this profession? That is very, very true. I, it was the, I remember the moment, thinking that what a great job this is. I mean, he gets up there, he's having the time of his life, he's making all these other people happy, and they pay him. So <laughs> I thought, yeah, that looks like a, you know, I knew that such a, a, an occupation existed, I suppose, but this, is, this was just kind of being there. It was my first Broadway show, really. I'd seen it a few musicals in the sticks, but uh, this was my first big show, and it was such a lovely show, and I loved all those music hall songs. So uh, I thought maybe I'd give that a shot. And so now it's about 60-something years later, and uh, <laughs> I'm still wondering if it was a good idea, but here I am. <laughs> and your parents wanted you to have a plan B, and you had a rock-solid one, right? Sure. I, I can also play the guitar a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> what could go wrong? That did lead Yes, I mean it was like uh, you know the the sex might lead lead to dancing kind of thing, you know. Performing led to wanting to learn the guitar, which led to songwriting. None of which you can cash in at a you know at a a, a window. Uh, fortunately, I've always done exactly what I wanted to do and what I love, and I think I got a huge break there, and it's been a very nice. Nice life so far. And speaking of music, people may not know, you were, I guess with an asterisk, you were part of a really talented 60s band that had a couple of big hits 
before you arrived. Can you talk about your time with Left Bank? Well, I'm, a, I'm kind of a, a numbered footnote to an asterisk, really. <laughs> uh, what happened was the, the band made this single, Walk Away Renee. Nothing happened. Uh, they had a flip side that got a little play. No, not much. Of course, this is in the late 60s. This was uh, actually the middle 60s. And it was, the charts were just a different thing then. But they, the band broke up. They went their separate ways. Everybody had a big fight. I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't there. Um, but then the record started happening, and it became an actual hit. Got into got to like number three somewhere. And... Uh, so they they put the, a band together again, and their their original drummer was a friend of mine. He says, "Come on and play the guitar." So I rehearsed with them for three months, and we got ready to get out there on the road. And then the band broke up again because the uh, keyboard player and his father, who was also our manager, had a huge fight. And it's just you know it was one of those internecine things that had something to do with anything else. But I you know I grabbed my guitar and uh, my pretty suits, and I, I hit the road and went back to school. <laughs> That's the whole story. Uh, school was Carnegie Mellon, or, or as my wife's uncle, who went there as well, calls it Carnegie, which is correct. Well, at the time, it was Carnegie Tech. Mm. It was before the Mellon money, yeah. And uh, But actually, this was uh, I went back to school. I went back to NYU uh, for a couple of years. Right, right. Now it was at yeah. it was at Carnegie that you met up with David Lander, became friends, and it was actually there that you developed the characters of Lenny and Squiggy. Yeah, that's absolutely right. David and I met while painting a chair. They made all the freshman uh, acting students do crew work, so we were painting a chair together. And this <laughs> strange, strange little man, also an eighteen-year-old <laughs> person like me, and and we just had a great rapport. His favorite Broadway show of all time was How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, one of the co-stars of which uh, was a guy named Rudy Valley, and my father had written the uh, his, his, had ghostwritten his autobiography, so we had a lot to talk about. And he just turned out to be one of those guys. You know, you meet him occasionally, meet people occasionally that you go, well, we were sort of made for each other, weren't we? You know, <laughs> and when those things happen, you got to listen because uh, someone's sending you messages. Yeah, and he went to L.A. and then got in touch with you. And as a writer, he said, I'm doing a little radio thing. You can do some of that. We can work together. Right. The credibility gap. Yeah. Mm. David, I remember David calling me up and telling me two things. I just got, hey, McKean, I just got married. And I said, oh, congratulations. And also, you got to come out here because uh, we're trying to find somebody to replace this guy we're trying to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> no. The credibility gap it was a satirical news uh, program. Very funny. So I did that. I had a, I made a, a, a little money uh, doing a uh, children's record, and so I took that cash and I and I, I went out to to L.A. and I figured I'd stay for a month or so, and uh, I'm still here. How did you meet up with uh, with Penny Marshall and Rob Reiner? Well, they were friends of David. David had actually. Uh, had appeared in a play directed by Rob Reiner, written um, by Phil Mishkin. And, uh, you know, they were, they, they knew each other. They were friends. I think they roomed together briefly. All those guys did. Uh, and, um, yeah, I just, he and uh, Rob and Penny, when they were early married, you know, we used to see them around at David's house or uh, clubs when we would do a gig. They would come and see us. 
So, you know, Penny was somebody I just kind of knew peripherally. I knew on from TV. I thought she was brilliantly funny. And so the middle 70s, you know, 1975, 76, that's when we started working together. And uh, you probably know the rest. You seem to know everything else. <laughs> We're talking with Michael McKeon on Dante. Well, she offered... Remember- yeah, go you ahead. Remember my Hulu, you remember my Hulu password? I have, as long as you know everything else about me, I, I, the one thing I can't. I, I, I'm not going to say it on the air. I, I do know oh, okay. it clearly. Yeah, text me. <laughs> so she uh, <laughs> she reached out to you and said, oh, we got a writing opportunity for you here, and maybe you can work in those two characters of uh, yours and yeah. David's. And, and you did that uh, with, with all deliberate speed, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we uh, did with the very first episode, in fact. <laughs> um, you know, they were, they said, look, well, maybe you guys could be in the scene. So we went into the scene and said, well, can we write what we say? And they said, well, you're, you're writers. Go ahead. And so we wrote a little bit of it and, uh, it was fine. It was enough that it established the characters. It's funny. They're showing those now on logo. Right. right. Uh, you know, and I just, I happened to catch one the other day and it's just so interesting because some of them I haven't seen in literally 40 years. So it's it's uh, it's because you look at that stuff and you go, I remember exactly what went on every <laughs> moment, and it's true. I have that kind of brain, useless. Well, of course, the show became an, an enormous hit on the air for several seasons, and then uh, shortly after that, early '80s, Spinal Tap, and uh, right. I I have to think when you guys were were working on this, could you have had any idea of of the lasting impact? The fact that nearly four decades later there are still generations of people who I'm sure approach you in airports and quote lines from the film. Yes, but only in airports, strangely enough. <laughs> no, that's not true. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, uh, we, we just wanted to make it funny. And the only way we knew how to do it was by kind of keeping each other, the four of us, by keeping, keeping ourselves honest about what makes each other laugh. Because we all got the joke. And we all knew what was extraneous to the joke, and we all knew what was spot on to the joke. Uh, the joke being the reality of this of this false thing that we're telling. Um, and we just uh, we kind of had each other. We kind of had each other. You know, if I knew if I knew if I made the other guys like if the scenes only worked if we're all on the same page. And we just got real lucky, and we worked real hard. And we, you know, we took a while, but we got it right. Is that sort of trust between the actors what what makes ensemble work so well for for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, listen, I'm, I've always been a team player as far as that goes. Uh, you know, I love I love being involved in stuff, no matter kind of what level I'm on, um, and I always have because it just it's kind of a nice feeling. It's at its most distinct. I think in a show, I've been doing a lot of theater in the last 20 years and, and uh, it, it, there's nothing like that. It, it really is like, well, this is it. They're your family now, or they're like the small town you've moved to. Mm. You all know each other's business and you all have this weird and amazing job to do eight times a week. It's just, for me, it's still thrilling. Yeah. You so, mentioned the, uh, the stage work and, and you've done, uh, so many wonderful plays from Hairspray to uh, Superior Donuts, uh, Little Foxes, um, all the way with our friend Brian Cranston. Also, I, I found this out doing a little research here. Um, about 20 years ago, I did one of the strangest production, uh, productions of Cymbeline 
ever, and I was directed yeah. by a woman named Kate Powers that I think you know. Oh, absolutely. She's awesome. She's one of my heroes, really. Yeah, and she brought, she brought you to Sing Sing, right? She did, yes. Sing Sing did a production of Superior Donuts, which I had done on Broadway and at Steppenwolf before that. And, uh, and she, she said she was directing that, and she wanted to know if I met, wanted to meet the cast, and I said, of course. So I went up, had a very, very interesting evening there. And uh, we've stayed in touch since then, and we've kind of, you know, we're just, we're, we're pals because I think we respect each other. And she's really one of those real heroic people that you run into. Some of them are nurses. Some of them are theater directors. <laughs> sure. Uh, the movies you've done with, with Christopher Guest and with Harry, they're, they're so brilliant. A Mighty Wind, uh, that had to be fulfilling on so many different levels. Winning the Grammy, of course, but getting the Oscar nomination, but getting it with your wife, Annette. How cool was that? It was very cool. It was, uh, it was something that just kind of came upon us. It was right after 9-11, and we were driving, because uh, the planes were all grounded, we were driving back to Vancouver, where my wife was working on on uh, Smallville. So on this drive, we started writing songs, and they kept kind of. You know, Chris was already starting the, his work on on Mighty Wind, and uh, so they all seemed to be kind of gravitating toward that feel. So we started. We wrote two songs right off the top, and and wrote a couple more that were not used. Um, you know. I wrote, wrote one more with C.J. Vanston, and I wrote with everybody else. Um, but it was really kind of like, oh, okay, here we are early in our relationship. We've been married for two years at this point. And it's like this, we have this too. And so it was very nice kind of, it was almost like getting a pat on, on, on the back for having good instincts. You know, there was mm -hmm. no way I could know that she'd be really fun to write songs <laughs> with. But here we are. So. But, and then to have it be that, that beautiful moment in a uproariously funny move, uh, movie, but a very poignant moment between Eugene Levy and, and Catherine O'Hara. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. Chris made that song uh, an actor in the show, and that was kind of like why I got some notice. Let's talk about Better Call Saul, which is uh, absolutely my, my favorite television show. We've had uh, your castmate Patrick Fabian on the program. Had uh, him also do his killer Jonathan Banks impression. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty astounding, yeah. Yeah, you know what? The, I'll tell you, though, and this doesn't work for radio. The best Jonathan Banks impressions don't have any words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're right. I have, <laughs> I have seen him shorten the life of a waiter from 20 yards. It's uh, pretty <laughs> astounding. Well, what we talked about ensembles and, and the group of actors that you have in Better Call Saul, and then couple that with oh. the brilliant writing and direction, it just doesn't get any better. No, it, it was uh, it was a pot of jam I fell into, and um, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Uh, Vince Gilligan, I've worked with Vince on X Files, and uh, every time he had something cooking, he would call me up. Uh, and, you know, and it was always like, oh shit, I'm in the middle. Excuse me, sorry. I know. <laughs> I I didn't really say that. No, we'll uh, we'll edit that I'd out say, in post production. Okay, I'd say I'd say heck, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, I, it just it, it, it did it worked out this time, and I'm really glad it did. It um, you know I was doing uh, all the way with Brian, and Brian was kind of filling me in on yeah they're talking about stuff over there. Better call Saul; it's going to be really good, and you should do this. And so I kind of felt I had a friend in court anyway, along with uh, with Vince. 
Well, and it turned turned out good. Yeah, it, it sure did. And uh, man, I, I've always I've always felt like sometimes the best acting is done without a word of dialogue being spoken. And I think of the incredible, uh, powerful work everybody did, but you in particular in the courtroom scene. My word. Oh, thanks. Well, I had a lot to say in that one too. Uh, it was. <laughs> It was one of those things. It was uh, the director called me up and said, oh, hi, I'm, I'm Dan Sackheim, and uh, I'm going to direct. Said, Good. He says, have you read the script yet? I said, no, not yet. It was a long sigh, and he said, okay, here's how I think we're going to have to do this. Because it was one of those things where you want to get it all in one swallow if it's going to really, really work. So I said, look, you know, I'll work on it. I'll get it no matter what it is. And it's, it's a big scene, but it was really never not fun mainly because of the you know the company and the feel of the of the place it was so you know by this time i loved everybody there and they seemed to tolerate me and <laughs> you know i had your ray seahorn on the set i had your uh, i had the, the, the whole gang there so it was pretty nice and of course mr odenkirk not a bad guy to go to yeah he's okay to too yeah he's um, awesome and and chuck obviously when you play a character you you have to believe in what they're doing and I know some people have said, well, he's not a sympathetic character. Well, but of course he is from your perspective. And, and I feel like his actions toward Jimmy are, are completely justified because of Jimmy's lack of ethics in the profession that, that Chuck loves so much. And, and even the allusion to the role that Chuck played in raising Jimmy. And I mean, that scene when he talks yeah. about the book that parents read and you, you correct him and say, you know, I read that book too. Yeah. Well, there's, it's a very complicated relationship. All brothers are probably complicated. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think you said it all. <laughs> uh, will we see, uh, maybe you can't let the cat out of the bag either way, will we see more flashbacks with Chuck in the coming season? The, the cat stays discreetly in the bag, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> I thought that would be the case. Yeah. Another uh, work that you just had out was uh, Good Omens on Amazon. Yeah, the uh, the fun? that was a great and the your role of uh, uh, Sergeant Shadwell was just great. I, I read a Thank description you. that you gave of his accent as cranky old Scot speak, and I, in the book it's described as an intermediate, uh, indeterminate regional accent that wandered right. around a bit. So, what was that yeah. process? For you to get Shadwell's accents to the point where you and Neil Gaiman wanted it to be for the for the well, show. When I when he first approached me about the role, he says, "How's your Scottish accent?" I said, "Well, I'll I'll give it a shot." <laughs> and he said, "Actually, this is." And I I had read I had read the book, and he said, "Do you remember anything about?" And I didn't remember Shadwell's accent thing, but he said in the book it was he goes all over the British Isles. He's just a wanderer. He says, "Well, I don't think we can do this." because it just looks like the actor's looking around for the, for the accent. There's no, in other words, there's no narrator, uh, mm. narrator in, in the, you know, who would point this out. You would just, you know, you would just, it would be in the dialogue, but he decided to, not to do that. It's just like a real general kind of, you know, work on a Scottish accent and we'll go from there. So I had a lot of Scottish, Scottish people on the set, of course, Doug McKinnon and, uh, and David Tennant. And I would ask them for, you know, help and edification and, uh, you know, and Doug had a tendency to go, don't worry about it. You know, you're this Shadwell's from everywhere. Don't try and nail it down. 
And, you know, you can't really do that. I, I When I was a kid, if I wanted to do an Irish accent, I'd just pretend that I were I was uh, Barry Fitzgerald. I'd just <laughs> do a Barry, a Barry Fitzgerald accent. And I could have done uh, – there's a guy, a very funny uh, Scottish comic named Frankie Boyle. And I could I, – I listened to a lot of him, and I could just do Frankie Boyle, but it would have been 100% wrong for the character. Mm-hmm. So I just had to, you know, stay honest to who I thought he was and, and – uh, you know the accent is a mess, but uh, hey, we got through it. We we all survived. That's the, that's what matters. We're talking with Michael McKean. Have to ask you about Celebrity Jeopardy uh, that you won. What was the biggest challenge, or the toughest part of that whole scenario? Well, the well, one very tough thing took care of itself when Andy Richter took himself out of the contest <laughs> to go on the road with uh, Conan. Right. Nobody would nobody would have beaten him. I wouldn't have had a shot with him at all. Uh, and the other one was on the day was actually uh, Jane Curtin and Cheech Marin were both monsters, really fast on the buzzer and really smart. And um, it was only through a fluke that I, you know, that I had made enough the previous day. And Cheech beat me the, the second game, but still I hadn't, you know, you added the two together and I came out the winner. But uh, yeah, it got it was it was really fun and really. It was really, yeah, you had to had to concentrate. I love a food factor fiction. Will there be a fourth season of that? The, oh, there has been a fourth. Season. Well, there was. Was that the fourth? Uh, yeah, that was the fourth. Uh, and I think we're still kind of waiting to hear. They might have enough. You know, it's very popular. Apparently, people like to watch them over and over again, which I think is great. It's on the Cooking Channel, but I think some of the reruns are also on the Food Channel. Um, it just flail around. You can find food factor fiction. It's it's really fun, and you can actually learn stuff that's almost useless. But you know, you pull it out at a, uh, a cocktail party, and uh, you get a free drink. Right, no knowledge. Or at a party anyway. Who, no, no such thing as useless knowledge. I understand you've got some projects in the can. Anything you can share with us? Yeah, I'm in uh, the next season of Grace and Frankie. I did a stretch there. Um, there is a show called Breeders, which mm. I shot in the UK with uh, Martin Freeman and the great Daisy Haggard, and um, those are upcoming. That's going to be on FX here, yeah. Uh, and um, I did a little film with uh, with my friend Kelly Oxford, uh, which could be really really good. And uh, yeah, come on, I'm going to take take a little uh, break now. And uh, I, I might have something going in November, but um, I'm going to go hang with my wife. She's shooting a show up in uh, in Vancouver pretty soon, and uh, so I'm going to go be a, be her fancy man. Oh, very nice. Oh, well, I meant to mention to loved loved your appearance on the Good Place. We've had uh, Will Jackson Harper oh, yeah. on the show a couple times. That was great. I yeah, I did Will Har- I did um, all the way with Will Harper. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He's he's my hero, man. He's great, and. Uh, just all all my all my my girlfriends and my and my <laughs> wife and my my daughters all said after they saw all the way they said oh that was great this good Brian was great who's that guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's cute isn't he but he's an amazing actor he's got great range and I think it's uh, I think it's nice that people know who he is absolutely well Michael it's a real treat for us we've been fans of your work for so long thank you so much for making time for us and we wish you and Annette continued success and good health. Thank you so much, and I appreciate it. And have a great congratulations again on number 2000. And 
Do a couple thousand more and then call me back. I'll do it again. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay. Thanks a lot, Rich. Michael McKeon here on Downtown, the podcast. And we love the opportunity to talk with people whose work we we respect and admire. It's even it's even better, Carrie, when they turn out to be really good guys like Michael McKeon was. Yeah, he was just an absolute pleasure to uh, talk with both off air, on air and off air and uh, so forthcoming about, you know, just an enormously lengthy career that he's had mm. spanning every aspect of entertainment. Yes. And also a great follow on Twitter. If you're not doing that, uh, it's at MJ McKean. So you'll enjoy that too. Michael McKean here on Downtown the Podcast. We'll take a break, get a quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance, and then talk with country music legend Kathy Matea. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Sheet down on the corner, just a little The latest album from country music legend Kathy Matea. The song is called St. Teresa. The album is Pretty Bird. We had a chance to talk with Kathy about the making of that album, but also her very large role, including opening up the brand new country music documentary from Ken Burns. Here's Kathy Matea on Downtown the Podcast. We talked to Ken Burns, a lengthy conversation with him a couple of weeks ago, and I've had the pleasure of seeing the entire country music series and I, I just want to sit back and watch it every night I think yeah he's amazing at telling a story and the story itself is compelling and the combination of those two things is you know amazing is we were all we are we are all so touched here in this genre to have that lens that powerful storyteller telling our story how did you get involved in the project um the our public radio Station, I mean, public, our public television station here in Nashville uh, held a screening of the documentary that they did on the Dust Bowl. And I went to that event and met Dayton Duncan, who wrote and produced mm. that documentary with Ken. And then was he let me know that night that they were, were starting to work on country music. This was eight years ago. Wow. And he said, would you mind if I just... You know, when I'm in town, I just pick your brain every now and then. I was like, no, that's fine. So he'd come into town, and my husband and I would go to dinner with him, and he'd ask us questions, you know, like just get into a conversation and ask a bunch of questions about the town and the industry and the and the music. And so about halfway through dinner, he would reach into his jacket pocket and pull out some old envelope and start making notes on the back of an envelope. <laughs> 
And the next thing we know, they were saying we were consultants on the film. <laughs> but to us, it just felt like having dinner and telling our telling stories, you know, it was, and it was just great. And then over time, as Dayton did more reading and research, he would come into town and he would be and did more, all these interviews. He would tell us stories. And he would be telling us about how little Jimmy Dickens met his wife or some story that didn't make it into the show. And uh, so it was just it was quite a journey. Well, and the wonderful so many great moments, but the wonderful story of John writing Where Have You Been, the whole process of him uh, singing it in this songwriter's showcase and then how it how it came to be, what it what it turned out to be. Yeah. You know, sometimes. um Sometimes you know that you have, you know, some hit song, and sometimes you know you have something special and you just want people to hear it. And the whole way that that song happened, from the way it was written to the way it got heard and recorded and out on the radio, was completely organic and not something any of us ever thought would happen. So we were kind of taking the ride with everybody else. And... um you know, to think that you have a song that moves someone enough that they would want to include it in a in a in a a, a documentary like this is, you know, it's. I mean, really, that's what we all want to do at the end of the day. You know, when we're doing music, we want to make other people feel something. We want to connect with other people through music. So that was. I didn't know until I saw the 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 first cut of the entire show, which was a couple years ago. And I, I was, I was emotionally wrecked mm. by the end of it. It was pretty surreal. Well, and as one of those country radio guys who played it off the album before it was released as a single, uh-huh. I, I had no idea that others were doing that at the same time, that that's what led to it being released. Yeah, it was very organic. And, uh, you know, kind of scary. I mean, I'm like, oh, the, people started to, that's exactly what happened. People started to ask about the song, and and we were playing it in our shows, and we would get a standing ovation in the middle of the show. The audience would stop the show. And you could hear people sobbing, and I'm thinking, well, this is really great. I mean, what a special thing. And do you want to hear this when you're driving to work on the interstate <laughs> in the morning? I mean, I was like, I, I don't know what will happen if we put this out, if people will, you know, if it'll just be too much. And as it turned out, that wasn't, that wasn't the the case, but it was, um, you know, to be, it's also a really nice thing to be reminded of that story and how special it is. That's another thing that I got from just watching the documentary. It was like, wow, you know, I'm, that was a pretty phenomenal thing to have happen in your life. And for my husband to have written a song about his grandparents and, and me be singing it and us take the ride together. That was just amazing. Uh, there's also a great story that really sets the tone for the entire series. Are uh, you talking about your time as a tour guide in Nashville? Yes. Um, when I was 19, I moved to Nashville, I quit college and moved to Nashville. And I was too, you had to be 21 years old to wait tables in Tennessee at that time. So I couldn't get a job in a, in a restaurant. So I had the name of somebody who worked at the Hall of Fame who was from the town we moved from in West Virginia. And he got me an interview, and I got a job as a tour guide making minimum wage. But it gave me – 
it was like a crash course in the history of country music. And I discovered Jimmy Rogers, and I discovered Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys and the Osborne Brothers and all these people who were like the generations that had come before what I had been listening to. So it was like, you know, a mandatory history lesson. And then we had this uh, painting, this big painting on the history of country music done by Thomas Hart Benton, who's one of the great American painters. And it turned out to be his last painting. They found him. Uh, he had died in the studio uh, finishing up the painting. And if you look closely on the painting, there are telegraph poles with no telegraph lines. Mm. And it's unsigned. But um, I used to give tours on this painting. And so they got me talking about it in the interview. And the next thing I know, when I get to see the screening of the first full edit of the series... <laughs> Dayton Duncan, who's the producer, pulled me aside. He said, I just need to warn you. You're the first thing we're going to see. And I fell out of my chair. Uh, but it was a lovely kind of full circle moment, you know, from my, my young teenage self to be sitting here at this moment and watching watching the thread between, you know, the arc of my whole career. Well, it, it's so wonderful. And it's, you know, it captures what the music is all about, that you growing up in West Virginia, Patsy Cline in Virginia, people in Nashville, sure, but Alabama, Austin, Bakersfield, Maine, it, yeah. it didn't matter where the music spoke to people all around the country and continues to. Yeah, and, you know, I also think that it's a, it's a big thing to wrangle. You know, country music mm -hmm. has a lot of branches and a lot of interpretations, and all of us were like, geez, how are they going to do that? And they set it up so beautifully with, uh, Catch Secor, who is the lead singer of Old yes. Crow Medicine Show. And, you know, he's a great bridge between the older artists and the youngins. And he plays some old fiddle tune that's like 100 years old. And he, t he just says, very simply, country music is all of the music that evolved from the fiddle being brought over from, the, from Europe and the banjo being brought over from Africa and them mixing together. And everything that came out of that is country music. And it all goes back to this this one root. And uh, I thought, what a great, if someone did not know the first thing about country music, it would be a, a wonderful, it was just such a very concise way to set it up. And it was also interesting to go to New Hampshire and see this first screening. We took four days to watch all eight episodes, and a bunch of us went up. And uh, just talking to some of the, people who work at the film company who were like, I did, I was a country music fan. I didn't know I was a country music fan or I didn't think I liked <laughs> country music, but I am in love and I can't get enough of it now. And that was very heartening as well. Just, just to think there may be many, many people who think they know what country music is, who are going to be surprised and opened up by this documentary. Oh, there's no question. We're talking with Kathy Matea here on Downtown. I want to talk about your, your most recent album. I think the last time you were on with us, you were just getting ready to go into the studio for what became Pretty Bird, this wonderful album that you did with Tim O'Brien, uh, some of the best music you've done in your entire career. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, it was. this record was very different from anything I've done before. And um, the title song is an old Hazel Dickens song, and she is an Appalachian singer who came, kind of came of age in the 70s. And uh, 
uh, during the folk revival, but she was like bluegrass and Appalachian. And I always say if West Virginia had a voice, it would be Hazel Dickens' voice. Um, and I struggled with that song for years. I've wanted to do that song. And one night, late, late at night in the shower, it's an acapella song. And I was just taking a shower before I went to bed one night, and I suddenly realized I was just singing in the shower, and I realized I was singing that song, and that somehow I had learned to do it, but I didn't know until that moment. So I I, uh, I got my phone and sang it into the recorder of my phone to just make sure that I could hear myself do it once. And so that, you know, there were just lots of moments like that on the record where I, things I evolved into these songs. And it's pretty wide ranging. There's, you know, uh, everything from Ode to Billy Joe to some sort of bluesy flavored stuff to some more, some more folk influenced stuff and Appalachian influenced. And Tim O'Brien is an old friend of mine and a, just a musical genius. And he is one of those people who really lives in, uh, is, is really his voice lives in so many, he can play great jazz standards. He can play all the bluegrass uh, traditional songs. He's a great songwriter in his own right. He can wail on a blues tune. He's just a, kind of a renaissance man. And I thought, if anyone can help me thread, make a thread through all of these things that makes them work together, it's Tim. And uh, it was just it was just the most fun, maybe the most fun I've ever had in the studio. And so many great songs. You mentioned Ode to Billy Joe. I, I love your version. It was a song that I wasn't familiar with. I've since gone back to, to hear the original Martha Carson's I Can't Stand Up Alone. Oh, yeah. Um, I first heard that at the, old, at the Old Exit Inn here in Nashville, which is the legendary club that was uh, – in its heyday when I moved to town and everybody, I mean, I saw Hank Williams Jr. there and I saw George Jones there and the Roaches and I mean, just everybody played there. Jesse Winchester played there and he did that song and I had forgotten about it until he died. And when he died, it kind of came back. I've listened to YouTube videos of him all day when he passed and he had done that song and I went back and listened to the original and kind of dug into Martha Carson's story a little bit. She was sort of country gospel. Um, and then we, I took it to Tim and Bill, my guitar player came up with this funky arrangement. And he was like, I think we should take a little feet approach to this. And by the time we finished, Tim had this big fat cello banjo. It looks like a banjo that's been put in the microwave oven too long. And it's low. It's kind of like a bass banjo. And he, took it out and started playing it with Bill. And the next thing we know, we were all on a front porch somewhere in Appalachia playing a jug band version of the song. <laughs> and that's part of the fun of those kinds of songs that where the lyric and the melody holds up. You can, you can sort of take different people can uh, interpret them very, very different ways. The last time we talked with you, you told the, <clears throat> excuse me, the wonderful story about how that meeting with Tony Bennett in, in many ways changed your life. You yeah. started taking vocal lessons. And, and this album, Pretty Bird, is really uh, a chronicle of that journey. And uh, well, is it safe to say a celebration of the evolution of your voice? Yes. And um, the absolute joy that for a while, I didn't know if I was still going to be able to sing. My voice was changing. And looking back, I think it had to do with menopause, um, which I'm still kind of ticked at God about, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but I, 
I I thought, okay, if I'm not going to be able to sing anymore, I want to at least know. I want to at least get the, the, the whether it's just a glitch that I need to work through or whether it's that I'm, this is the end of my singing. I need to stand tall and walk through that until I have the answer. And when I realized I was going to still be able to sing and that there were these songs that had walked me through that process and that these were the songs that brought me back to singing. The joy in that has been so great. You know, I was willing, I mean, I'm not going to do it if it's not right. And I was willing to walk away. And so to sort of get another chance to still be doing what I love so much, it just feels, um, I just feel very, very lucky, very blessed. Well, so are we to get to enjoy Pretty Bird is Thank you. Wonderful album. And uh, again, I uh, can't wait till September 15th for the rest of the country to get to see Ken Burns' country music. We talked to Ken. We talked with Roseanne Cash about it. We've got the great Bill Anderson coming on next week to talk about oh, it. Oh, great. It's, oh, it's great. such a, a wonderful celebration and no better way to start it than with your story. Well, thank you very much, Rich. I'm, I tell you, I'm just honored to be part of it. And, uh, and to have had something to contribute that they thought was helpful to tell the story. So, you know, to be up there with all your peers, it feels, you know, again, I just feel really blessed that I feel blessed that they've told our story so beautifully and to have a voice in that. Kathy, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Thank you, Rich. I really appreciate it. That's Kathy Matea on the podcast. Our thanks to her and the great Michael McKean as well. Thanks to you for joining us this week. If you like the show, tell your friends, spread the word, subscribe, give us a big old five-star review. The check will be in the mail anytime soon. Most of all, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Downtown, the podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.